Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please help me welcome Zach Mason. Thanks for coming, everyone. So this is chapter 57, Vaguely Citation. Kern checks his GPS is still within meters of where he's supposed to be. The sun must be coming up as there's now enough light to see the gray swell. He tries to keep a good watch, but the fog and rain are always the same, and his mind wanders. Akemid said the ships run silent, like black ghosts on the water. The rain hisses on the sea's curvature. He pulls his windbreaker tighter. He'd found it wadded in the forward compartment. It keeps out most of the wet and none of the cold. His old cell bleats as it finds a new network, though he sees nothing in the fog. They're close, Akemi whispers in his ear. Connect to the network. Hurry. I'll give you the password. No mistakes. He taps in the digits of the password as she recites them. The network is duly acquired. He waits, but nothing happens. Akemi exhales. It worked, she says. How do you know? Because we're still here. If it hadn't worked, we might have had time to hear the missiles launch. At first he thinks they're waves, so smooth as their emergence from the fog. There are about ten of them. Very dark, the ships, their lines more organic than industrial. That one, Akemi says, head for the biggest. He maneuvers the boat alongside the hull's smooth expanse, taking pains not to bump it. The noise of his motor violates the silence. Halfway along the ship's length, their rungs set into its surface. He brings the boat ahead of the ladder, shoulders his duffel, and kills the motor for the last time. He stands, arms out for balance, the boat aimless under his feet. As the ladder slides by, he jumps. As his hand finds the rain-slick rungs, he looks down to see the boat peeling away, as though of its own accord, and thinks of it drifting for days or for years, and wonders where it's going. By the time he's climbed onto the deck, the boat has vanished in the fog. The ship's form is streamlined and vaguely cetacean, an effect aided by its black ceramic hull. There are no railings, no doors, no evident way into its interior. Hemispheres the size of beach balls protrude at random from the deck. Missile pods? Sensors? And he's reminded of the gardens they have in Japan that are just sand and rocks. But he doesn't think those are quite so geometric or so uniformly black. There's a sort of shallow cavity toward the back of the ship. He can just squeeze himself in, which at least gets him out of the wind. He clasps his arms to his chest, using the duffel for a pillow. Now what? He asks Akemi, but she isn't talking. He'd meant to just close his eyes for a moment, but when he wakes, it's night. He stalks the deck, stretching his legs into shadow boxing. The only lights are the stars and his phone's weak glow. He catches himself scanning the horizon for the boat. His old phone picks up a dense fog of encrypted transmissions, presumably the ships discussing whatever it is that fleets of autonomous sea craft have to talk about. He imagines their silent voices washing over him, this endless conversation in the dark. 
So that's the first chapter I ever wrote for this book. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know who this person was or what the ships were or where they were going. It just sort of came as an image. So I thought it would be an interesting thing to start with. Chapter 44, Great Dark Forward. Once the sun sets, it gets dark immediately. Benign by daylight, the enshadowed jungle awakes a sense of primal horror. Kern leaves the road and looks for a place to spend the night by the faint glow of his cell. He finds a shallow cavity under a fallen tree trunk. It looks like it was dug out deliberately, but a long time ago. And nothing lives there now, so he scrapes up a nest from fallen leaves and branches and gets in. He tells himself it's just like a squat, but better, because the whole jungle is squat, with no guards or owners to get mad or chase you away. If there are patrols, they aren't really looking for him, and anyway, they probably can't see him unless they have infrared. He wishes he had a gun or some way to close up the cave. He wakes later to birds calling in the night. Sleep is gone, so he wakes his old phone and looks up articles on Kuan Lan. There's one by Summer Scanlon, PhD, who is an urban sociologist, whatever that is. And it's about how Kuan Lan is a physical manifestation of the regional psychopathology and the historical irony of a people's path of glorious revolution militant drinking next to a colonel in the new China army. More interesting by far is a tourist guide from decades ago, from before the fighting started, which tells me about the animals in the forest. There are grainy nocturnal videos of white owls and big gray cats moving among the trees, and of the tribes that used to live there. They were animists, which means they thought everything had a soul. He wonders what the tribesmen would have made of San Francisco, where cars, buildings, even coffee makers have wills of their own. The mountains, he reads, had been gods, and he can see that. He remembers their snowless peaks above the trees, and it's easy to imagine them conferring quietly in the twilight. He prays to them for protection then, though he's never prayed before, for he feels his death is near, gliding silkily through the trees, less malicious than playful, interested, endlessly patient. He considers going off into the jungle to meet his demon, but there's still Kwan Lan and the ring. He wakes at dawn and sits for a while, just breathing the cool air. A wave of homesickness buckles him, almost bringing him to tears, but Kwan Lan shines in his mind like a black star, and he sets out, as Lares would have said, into the great dark forward. That afternoon, the road hits a clearing where there's a checkpoint. He's going to try to just slip away, but the Thai officer, crisp in his air-conditioned power armor, sees him and beckons him over. The sweating, armorless enlisted men stare at him dully from the shade of a strangler fig. He thinks of running, but of course they have guns. One of the foot soldiers is tinkering with some kind of military robot, his jungle camo back, a solid mass of missile pods, most of which are carbonized and empty. He looks a little like a mechanical mule with a horrible case of boils. The officer says something in Thai, his voice emanating from the speakers and the armor's shoulders, and Kryn looks up at him blankly. They're nervous about something, he thinks, and whatever it is, I'm not it, and they know it, but they're still curious about me. 
The armor says something in Chinese, then some other language, and then finally the tiny synthetic voice says, Stop! You are entering a restricted area. What is your business here? I'm going to Quanlan, he says, immediately real, realizing it was stupid to tell the truth, but cops make him nervous. He reminds himself to use simple sentences so the translation program won't work. This is a restricted area, the armor squawks. You must have a special visa to enter this area. I'm a boxer, Muay Thai. I'm going there to fight, he says, making boxing fists, his hands pitiful beside the suit's enormous metal paws. He wonders what Thai jails are like, probably worse, much worse than American ones. He takes his wad of money out of his pocket, offers it up. The officer looks down at him, then smiles and says something the translator renders as, the cool heart leads to victory. He bows slightly, the armor groaning and stinking of burning oil as it moves, and says something that might have been a blessing but comes out as a disconnected string of static and waves him on. They fight by torchlight in Quan Lan. He sees a boxer fall with blood pouring from his mouth, get rolled out of the ring, and left at the edge of the jungle. They fight without gloves. The red firelight glints on the ground glass on the fighter's hand wraps. He sees a skinny Thai boy, younger than he is, die in the ring. He's close enough to see the boy's fixed, dilated pupils, his slack mouth as the doctor, the Japanese whose short-sleeved shirt reveals track marks. Pushes on his chest in vain under the watchful eyes of the victor in his corner. He sees knife matches, the crowd silence, the blades test the distance, flickering over isoclines of commitment and dread, like serpents tasting the air. And finally, the explosive attack, the arc of arterial blood. He hears bets made in Chinese, German, Japanese, English, and Thai. He sees winners paid in yuan, yen, dollars, euro, bags of cocaine, bricks of heroin, fuel cells, ancient mosaics, Buddhas, Garudas, missiles, guns. They've never cleared out the jungle. He guesses they didn't want satellites seeing in, so you can never see far, and it always seems to be dusk. Flashlights glow through the jungle's constriction, and during the day, parallelograms of sun. He haunts the tracks worn through the undergrowth between the tents, the retrofitted shipping containers, the Quonset huts that were surplus from a few wars back. Everyone ignores him except the bar girls, who call out invitations and snatch at his wrist as he passes them by. There's a market where geckos scamper over piles of damp Gucci tote bags, sparkling crystal bottles, bottles of cologne, mildewed jeans. There are cardboard boxes bringing with plastic bags of coarse yellow opium tied shut with a twist of wire. He sees a Karen tribesman showing his eight-year-old son how to analyze opium with a portal, portable mass spectrometer, which is oddly comforting, because it's the same model used back home by the more upmarket dealers. Burmese gunmen barking quietly over jackets of French Kevlar. Big white Americans with army haircuts and oversized watches sit at cafe tables, drinking rice liquor, smoking hash, and watching the girls go by. At night, strings of red and white Christmas lights burn in the trees and show him the way to the ring. <coughs> He watches every fight, but doesn't try to get in the ring, though he has little money left. He sleeps on a thin mat in the woods, in a waste space where fragments of torn cloth flutter in the branches, and the pale remnants of old plastic bags make the cops look like a burial ground. There's a girl, whose name might be Lily, she speaks no English, who came to him one night of her own accord. 
And in the gray corpse light filtering through the trees, he marvels at the contours of her body, how an object of desire can be composed of these abstract curves and swells of tissue, the dark pucker of a nipple, the pores and hairs on the olive skin. Running his hand over her stomach, he finds he's become an anatomist and knows where pressure would bring pain. Sometimes he talks to her in English as he caresses her, and that helps a little, but then he forgets words, and there's just the release. Then the slight rankness of her, the stones pressing into their bodies through the mat, and her skin against his, which seems to be thawing something. One morning he wakes alone. The copse is quiet, and the girl is gone, along with the last of his money. He lies there a while, trying to find some lingering trace of her warmth, then goes into town to look for her. He can't find her, but in a bar house in a shipping container, there's a girl with a burgundy lipstick and a matching sheath dress who looks at the girl's picture on his phone and says, That's Lily. Lily gone home. You want a new friend? He's at the ring when the Christmas lights come on. He's hungry, but that will have to wait. He finds the promoter, a small tie with a laptop and decaying cargo shorts that show the boxer's scars on his shins, and says, How do you get on the cart around here? The promoter shakes, takes him in, shakes his head, and in an Aussie voice says, Sorry, mate, or fill up, try another night, and turns back to his laptop. So make some room, he says, his voice almost cracking. How about I bust up some of your boys here, get the clutter off the card? The promoter regards him from under raised brows, then calls out something in Thai. A fighter with brown, snaggled teeth and a massive scar tissue on his eyebrows laughs, shrugs, says something back. The promoter says, All right, then, you and Jun Chak Sinedra here are now a prelim card, and may the experience live up entirely to your expectations. An old man beckons him over to a table by the ring and wraps his hands in strands of coarse hemp so tightly it hurts. The wrap finish, the old man takes a tube out of his pocket, smears Kern's knuckles with glue, and presses them into a plastic tub full of ground glass. He examines Kern's glittering knuckles critically, says, Dry two minutes, in thickly accented English, smiles toothlessly, and moves on to the next fighter. He tries to warm up, but his body seems to have no mass, his hands flickering through the air as though they're weightless empty shells, as harmless as smoke. The light is failing, and a crowd has gathered, the white lights in the trees stellate through the billows of cigarette smoke and ganja. Someone lights the torches, and the reek of kerosene fills the clearing. He knows they're watching him. The local wireless is buzzing with wagers on the event of his victory, defeat, death. He wants to run, but beyond the torches and constellations of electric lights, there's just the jungle darkness, and he feels his death is waiting for him there. He remembers his discipline, starts stretching like he does before every training. <coughs> before he's ready, but you've been waiting for this a long time, a voice says. The promoter takes his arm and ushers him toward the ring. He and the tie with the bad teeth and scars climb in, and when the bell rings, he's still oppressed by lightness, feeling as ineffectual as a dream. He sees that Scars is dancing a little, intending to play with him, so he kicks him in the leg and closes. The openings are obvious, and for a moment he suspects the fight's been rigged. But no, there's the pain and the disbelief in Scars' face as he eats punch after punch, and he never sees the knee that finally breaks his jaw. Kern steps back, not even sweating yet, not believing it's over, making a point of not looking into the flash for the cell phones from the crowd.
So this is a chapter where Arena first talks to an AI, which took something like three or four years to get right. Uh, hopefully the effort is not evident in it, but uh, it was it was tricky. So William Gibson once said that science fiction is always about the present. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book was make it not about the present, but basically it ended up being that, except arguably for this chapter. So there's that. Theater. Arena follows Magda through the labyrinth of WNP's offices, aware that Magda is glad to be getting rid of her, glad herself that she can soon be alone, lose herself in the machines. Magda gestures to a door, smiling falsely. Let us know if there's anything you need, she says with a slight involuntary bow. The theater is a steep slope of black seats descending to the white screen that spans the wall like a rich man's private cinema, though the space evokes tactical briefings more than film. Clean and quiet here, Irina closes the door behind her and sits, aware of the empty space, the silence. As the house lights fade, Irina's heart rises. Her other memory is full of the last day's imagery. Sun glare and asphalt, her hotel's existentially sterile lobby. The sudden chill of conditioned air as she stepped from the Santa Monica heat into the defense contractor's office. Which she now deletes, and those hours, briefly reprieved from oblivion, vanish for good, leaving an ache like a word just forgotten. But even now, new images accumulate. The flash of her phone as it acquires the local network, the smooth leather under her hand, her declining tension. Like a sun slowly rising, the screen begins to glow. Static, then, bright and churning, she watches intently, sifting the white noise for structure, but finds no more than the faintest ghost traces, always dissolved before she can give them a name. Her thumbs move in the air over her phone's screen, changing the filters, upping the resolution and intensity, and for some reason she sees herself as if from a distance, a woman sitting alone, staring wide-eyed at the screen's entropy, this most abstract of all possible cinemas. And then, without warning, the static is gone, and the AI's thoughts are there before her, manifest as a dully glowing nebula, riddled with storms, roiling sluggishly. Her other memory floods with its geometry and shadows. Zooming in, the storm's surface becomes glyphs flowing in waves over the screen. The glyphs are intricate, radiant with significance that she can't quite articulate. Like rain, she thinks, on a clear day, seen over miles of ocean. Like ideograms distended in a black hole's gravity. <coughs> like thick filaments of DNA fraying before her eyes. This is what she always thinks on seeing the glyphs, and then, as she remembers that language, and then, as always, she remembers that language won't suffice here. She remembers rain blotting on the bay windows of a high room in a good hotel rising over the surf of the South China Sea. Her lover, a mathematician, whom she never saw again after that night, had asked her to explain a glyph, just one, the simplest, fully, and she had tried as the hotel swayed just perceptibly in the wind, offering analogies at first, and then, when that failed, reciting the glyph's structure in a child's sing-song, her voice rising and falling, and as she wound on and on, she lost track of where she was. Seeing blurred shadows of glyphs in the rain channels on the glass, and then of time, until, finally, he stopped her with a finger to her lips and moved her hair aside to kiss tenderly her forehead's faded scar. She cranks the resolution then, and the glyphs seethe, splitting and fusing, burning off into nothing, her face flickering in the violence of the light. Her perception vibrates as her other memory churns, searching for pattern, vainly, and the moments pass, and still she can make nothing of the glyphs rushing by.
She knows then, with an absolute and dismal certainty, that her gift is lost, that the machine's luminous otherness is closed to her for good. But then the fugue hits, and her breath catches. The theater is gone, and she's somewhere else, bodiless, lost in the light and motion of the transit of Los Angeles. She knows the temperature, the wear and slickness of every meter of every highway in the inland traffic authority. She hears all the chatter of all the surveillance drones hovering high in the amber smog, and sees through their cameras tens of thousands of taillights receding. She sees all the car's positions and their velocities, the spectral probabilities of accident and delay overlaid on the interchanges, the overpasses, the long desert straightaways, and the patterns implied by these trajectories, beyond number, without meaning, rising up endlessly, like thermals shimmering over the freeways, pulling at her attention as they form and disperse. And there on the coastal highway where the ocean roars under raw cliffs, a new BMW steering fails catastrophically, and three lives in the car's computer blink out for good. And in that moment, 17 more cars merge onto the freeway, and she is grateful, almost, for the accident that marred her life but brought her this vision. Time falls away, and she would linger there in transit's endless present, but she reminds herself that she is not the sum of all velocities, that she is in fact alone somewhere in a theater, staring at its screen, her neck aching and her eyes dry, that she has work to do, a question to answer, that the AI isn't doing what it should. The filters change. Somewhere she is changing them, and in rapid succession she knows the mass of water behind the high desert dams, the number of solar cells turned like silver flowers to the sun, the blue chartreux glow of Cherenkov radiation in the coolant tank of a desert fission plant, the kilojoules of power humming through the high-tension lines strung over the desiccated mountains through the exurbs, pouring current into the Los Angeles sprawl, a sense of pressure then and heat lightning flaring at the edges of her vision, and the machine is with her, vast and slow, less persona than weather. She'd been diligent once in trying to know them, but that was long ago, and now it's enough to look as others look at the stars. The machine lacks all human feeling and all human meaning, but somehow feels close. Its thoughts pour over her. It's like trying to read letters written on turbulent water, and it's beyond even what her other memory can hold. So each moment as it passes is lost for good. She is acutely aware of leaving a strand of old selves behind, like brilliant pebbles on the timeline, a falling headlong into the future. This, she knows, is how other people always experience time, and she wonders if they notice. She wills herself to passivity, letting the torrent of its thoughts roar around her, like an infinite flock of birds always exploding into motion, and is drawn up with them through layers of abstraction. And at first there are glimpses of meaning, transient correlations between delays in coastal traffic and the dry mountain wind, strange spikes in power usage repeated at intervals of years. But then there's just form, beyond words, and her mind is a cloud dissolving in the wind. Abruptly, the maelstrom crystallizes the as the machine's focus narrows onto the Santa Monica coast, the fortress enclaves, enclaves of the rich behind the high walls glittering with jagged broken glass. Its thoughts slow as it runs over and over the long chain of causes whose sole conclusion is the shadow of a probability that they'll burn the lights a little longer tonight in those high rooms over the sea. And Arena sees that, for all its intricacy, it seems to be performing exactly as intended. 
the machine starts buying up futures contracts, wringing all the value from its sliver of prescience. What now, she thinks, as its millions of microtrades pour out into the market, and she's tired and ill at ease. Though she's just been sitting still, the fugue flickers as her focus wanes. She wonders if it's lack of sleep, then realizes she feels watched. There's a sense of decreasing pressure as the machine turns back to its work. It's sublimely complex, but somehow empty, and she feels certain it doesn't know she exists. Could she have been wrong? No, there's something else, barely there, and now, just like that, vanished. She adjusts the filters, eliminating the flows of energy and traffic, and now the city is gone, leaving her floating in an empty, neutral space. She looks out into the dark. Nothing, and nothing, and nothing without end. I know you're there, she thinks, trying to persuade herself, and there, like she's wilted into being, a distant phosphine shimmer. Gone already, but she pursues it, and yes, there it is, receding. She's aware of following it off of WNP servers and out into who knows where. She feels like an explorer in a lightless country. Will it always be like this, she wonders, though it's only been seconds, chasing this fleeting sense of presence, never giving up or getting closer. She stops abruptly, because there before her is another machine, like a turbulent ocean of pale light. It's fathomless, crystalline. Wrapped, she drifts closer. It's the biggest AI she's seen by far, bigger than she thought was possible. Its surface is golden, seething, is already closer than she'd thought, and now she's in it. Sense of rushing over the sea at dawn, and then the paper lantern glow of the glass and steel towers of a city rising from the waves, rising up without limit, its heights lost in cloud and the blue of distance. And there, up at the apex, something is hidden, and she can't quite bring it into focus. Hard transition to a road through the desert under a dust cloud sky, empty except for a girl driving too fast in a car that isn't hers. And the girl is leaving everything behind, and Irina pities her, for she's lost, though the road lies straight, and doesn't know where she's going. And now the road is gone, and there's a screen shimmering with static, and a steep room full of black seats where a woman sits alone holding her phone in her both hands. Looking old and tired in the half-light and staring at the screen as though it hid her salvation, and she thinks someone says, it's you. In the voice she hears distance and surprise and maybe wonder, and she starts to speak, though she doesn't know who will hear her or what she's going to say. But everything is collapsing, and as the fugue dissolves, the house lights rise, and she hears the projector's whine as it powers down. She's clutching her phone too tightly. Deliberately, she unclenches her hands. The back of her shirt is damp with sweat, but she shivers in the cold of the theater. Thank you. Questions? Don't be shy. Uh, sure, thank you. Yes. Oh, um, let's see. So, uh, Bretty Stanellis is an influence, and so is Joan Didion, who actually is a Bretty Stanellis influence. Um, Borges, some Calvino. You think so? Ellis and Didion, you mean, or? Huh. They leave the writer very little room, which can be comforting. I mean, the reader very little room, which can be comforting for a reader. 
knows the authority of control there. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I mean more so true to feel that, but... Interesting. So I know what you mean with Joan Didion. It's like meticulously controlled, but with Bratislava, I feel like it goes sprawling on and on in these huge, mellifluous run-on sentences that you have to sort of either let yourself get swept away on or reject. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh- <laughs> No, no, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I feel like the sound is the meaning in a way, and uh, it really affects how things feel. And uh, at times, it kind of has to just sweep you along, or else you Chris, lose the thread. Oh, really? Huh. Um, so uh, I hate to tell anyone that they're wrong, but I haven't read much Dennis Cooper. Uh, it's been a long time. Maybe I should check him out. Uh, what is what are his big books? Um, you know, I'm like middle aged with titles too, but he's uh, he's really an organic writer. He's a subject material really tough, like Alice can be too. But yeah. um, but the undercurrent of romance and, and almost um, it's it's a great. He's, he's one of the most skilled writers I've ever met. I mean, he really is amazing. Yeah. Like he's really, with the language and the subject, is beyond description. I think he was first, um, unless you go back to DeSade or something. <laughs> 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 but um, it's really interesting. Go on, tell me more. Oh, um, who, uh, the catalogs in that long. Uh, Virginia Woolf, uh, William Gibson, um, Patrick O'Brien. Uh, I've gone through the Opera and Maturin series probably or 20 times now. It's my default comfort reading. Um, yeah, those are the big ones. Yes? Uh, can you talk about uh, how, like, California and like, the, kind of the apocalyptic uses of California? Uh, like, why, why... I don't know, something, something about California, even though it still continues to be like the boom state in probably like, one of, like, you know, while other states supposedly fail or mm-hmm. kind of, like, we have a rust belt, you know, California always somehow that's a that's a good question uh mike davis wrote a book about how much people like to destroy la and film uh, uh i don't know I, I guess um it's like the end of the world in a way I, sometimes i imagine western civilization sort of washing west and sort of it gets to the california coast and there's nowhere else to go uh and and like it's a rich state, and uh, the future kind of forms here, and at the same time, it's very precarious. There are the earthquakes that are always threatening annihilation with no warning and for no real reason. Um, and, I don't know, maybe life feels precarious here. Like, you know, startups fail. Uh, it's expensive. <laughs> Disaster strikes. Uh, I, I, I don't know, it's just this mishmash of images. You look like you have a question. I do have a question. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the third character, the third point of view character, Talib? Um, you did it with Jeffrey from his point of view, but I think um, it would just be interesting to hear about like why he is an important pillar of the book. Oh, um, yeah. So most people seem to identify mostly with one protagonist, and it's rarely Tales, although he's my favorite, and some of my favorite readers like him the best. Uh, so he's sort of 
Uh, my attempt to take postmodern noir as far as it will go. It's like, I really like the idea of noir and the sense of a man in the city searching for something. Uh, but I'm not that into Raymond Chandler, even though I really want to be. Uh, I've, I've, I've read him many times with, you know, the, the utmost willingness, but I'm not that engaged. Uh, so Thales has lost most of his memory and, uh, he's in LA, the, uh, archetypal noir city and uh, he's trying to find his family and trying to uh, understand what his surgeon is doing to him and what the implant that he got actually means and is doing and uh, his existential condition turns out to be problematic Like uh, he's trying to understand the city but it turns out there is no city and he's trying to find his mother but it turns out she's infinitely far away he's trying to find out what's happened to his memories uh, but they don't exist and he's trying to find out what the surgeon's intentions toward him are but the surgeon is barely aware of his existence and so forth and so on uh, and, uh, and yeah so, so I'm fond of that character and uh, the, the degree to which other people are is uh, equivocal. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Yes. First chapter, you said it came to you because it's what the whole book is formed around. Mm-hmm. How did you come with the idea of Zen gardens and Oh, uh, I had an idea of what the ships looked like, uh, and they were ships not designed with humanity in mind. Uh, they were their own artifacts entirely. And so uh, this guy climbed up onto one, was clambering around on it, but it wasn't really meant for him. Uh, and so there were these structures, and he read what he could into the structures. And so it's very austere and sort of highly formalized. So I thought, oh, it's like Ryoanji. Or, oh, that's probably a missile pod, and this is probably a vaguely military kind of thing. Uh, but he didn't know what to make of it. So it was sort of like a Rorschach blot, uh, and certainly it was indifferent to him. recommend it to anybody. Uh, so I feel like there are advantages. Like a, a lot of the time, I feel like uh, a writer starts at the beginning and goes to the end. And so the, the inspiration is at the front. Uh, and then they have to work out the consequences because they have to have a narrative because otherwise it's not that engaging. So it feels like uh, they're just turning the crank to get to the end after the first third, which is unfortunate. So uh, I thought that if I just sort of found what was interesting to me and wrote that, then I'd know the general shape of the book, and then I could fit it in, and I'd never lose energy. Which I think worked, but uh, it was very difficult finding out how these things were going to fit together. Uh, and there was you know, no particular reason to believe that there was a good structure that would fit them together. So it's like uh, I would find these little islands of structure, and then more structure would sort of crystallize around them. But, and that was an intuitive effort. But then it was a significant cognitive effort taking these sort of extended islands and fitting them together in some coherent shape. Um, so yes, uh, it, it was a tricky process. Yes? 
how you think on structure. Could you work a little bit on that? Oh, uh, could you ask me something slightly more specific so I can... His question. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Um, just when you think of structure as a writer, how do you, what are things, what are, you know, just work on that one. You, I mean, that was good what you were, I just really enjoyed what you just said, and I kind of want to dig in deeper to that. Uh, well, I feel like um, everything that's really interesting comes pretty much intuitively. Uh, like, I, I've heard of writers sitting down with enormous rooms of butcher paper and writing everything out, uh, and that seems like it's going to be stillborn or sterile or not that engaging. Um, I mean, I don't mean to get all David Lynch with it, but I do feel like uh, it has to sort of come from the unconscious and be mediated through the intellect rather than being a product of the intellect if it's going to be particularly engaging. It's like, um, I don't know, you can just tell somehow there's there's some quality that's engaging about uh, stuff that comes uh, through this particular process. Just so I'm okay. Conscious really doesn't work off language to begin with. So you've got to have some. Your unconscious gives you answers, but not in language. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, one of the tests might be if you feel you've solved all of philosophy in your dreams. You mm-hmm. Somebody wakes you up in the middle of that process. You'll find that what, what you feel is so brilliant is not verbal. That's certainly the case, and uh, one would be ill-advised to try to publish a universal solution to philosophy that came into one in one's dreams. On the other hand, I feel like the sort of emanation of the subconscious, God, that sounds really new-agey, is uh, just these sort of washes of cognitive structure generally. And so, you know, it's emotive and visual and also linguistic. Like, language is not some inferior scum on the surface of the subconscious. It's just part and parcel of thought. How would I structure what into a book? Or, you know, I'm just wondering. I agree with you. This is the important stuff. Mm-hmm. But a reader is not going to stay with you in important stuff if it doesn't have a trained Oh, right, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting uh, how narrative is such a good technology, uh, and it's been around for all of human history and probably since long before that. It's just the shape of the mind, that we love stories and lock onto them. And even sophisticated readers who understand that narrative is narrative, and it's not really that important, and it's the things that it's delivering that are actually important, you still want to know what happens, uh, even though at the same time you know that it's ridiculous and that... Uh, you know, narrative is like the delivery system, and it's the other stuff that's the real payload. Uh, so it's, it's like a narrative is a way of tricking an audience into accepting what's actually important, and it doesn't matter if they know they're being tricked. It works anyway. You look skeptical. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're living with all this computer technology, which is placing us in an ever-present now. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are even using like a present losing context of history. Mm-hmm. And um, so time as a structural function is losing priority. That's all I can believe because of the way we enter our technologies. We don't we don't enter them on very much our time. We enter them on an ever present now basis. And, and so I'm just I'm thinking a lot about structure lately. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I like what you're saying about the delivery system and narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, so 
Uh, like in the character in the book, Irina, she has a, a memory implant, which gives her expanded short-term memory and also perfect long-term recall. So for her, it's literally a giant now. Uh, and she sort of never really changes because there's no pressure to. Uh, but I feel like for the rest of us mortals who lose so much, almost everything all the time, uh, even if we can look up things on Google News or what have you, uh, there's still history. Uh, and there's still compression of information and changes of interpretation over time. And uh, so I feel like if there's a time when history is going to die, and it will just be now, uh, that's a long way away. And I, I don't feel like we're there, Google notwithstanding. And then just one follow-up. So then what pressures a character to change? Uh, do you mean like arena or characters generally? Oh, um... What pressure is her to change? Um, huh, I, I am not coming up with a good, quick answer. Uh, I, well, so in the book, uh, well, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Uh, so, uh, in the book, Arena is in her forties, and um, she's sort of like in the soft, weak underbelly of the elite. Like she can. Uh, there are longevity treatments that can take uh, about a year of aging off per year, so you can sort of stay in place, and you can look 25 indefinitely if you have the money, and it gets exponentially more expensive as you get older. So uh, if you're a hedge fund manager, fantastic. You're golden. You, who knows how long you can stick around. Uh, if you're an ordinary middle class or lower person, uh, you're probably going to die in your 60s. Uh, and if you're arena, you're sort of hanging on by your fingernails, uh, and she basically spends her life doing that, uh, going from city to city and contract to contract, and even though she makes what an ordinary person would consider a vast amount of money, it's barely enough to keep her going. And so this is isolating, and she's also isolated in virtue of the different character of her cognition. So, um, you know, uh, relationships tend, tend to evaporate for her, because imagine how difficult it would be to have an argument with her if she remembers exactly everything you ever said, and the intonation, and the context, and everything. Hard to win a fight. Uh, and also her sort of deepest satisfaction, her art, as much as anything, is her ability to connect or commune with the AIs, who are these sort of vast, inhuman, cathedral-like, entirely uh, different and alien intelligences. Uh, and so she's sort of stuck there and being carried along until uh, circumstances around her life turn relatively violent, and uh, she's forced to make sacrifices and choose what's important, and she ends up spending all of her money trying to defeat her enemy, so she's going to miss the mayo. Uh, and so there she is, uh, thrown back into mortal life like an ordinary person. And she also goes as far as she can with the AIs and sees the biggest one and the best one, and has the opportunity to go even farther and probably die in the process, but see whatever is beyond what no human being has ever seen. And she backs off at the last minute, so she sort of chooses humanity. So that's what forces her to change. That's the choice she makes anyway. And to dialogue, because that's worthy of dialogue, the future always remains the same, but the past is something always worth retelling, and the story can always be different. We modulate our past, we can change it. But the future will always be that solid sameness. It's kind of interesting. I just want to give you something. Because sure. Thank you so much on that answer. Sure. Oh, interesting. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.